Hello everyone, my name is Ildar. Welcome to another episode of Ask Me About North Korea, a podcast about the most reclusive country in the world. In this podcast, I'm answering the most widespread questions about North Korean politics, society, and culture, in a short and concise manner, based on factual evidence. If you like this podcast, I would be grateful if you could share it, leave a positive review, or subscribe. You'll find the transcript of this episode, as well as some commentary posts, book and film reviews on the podcast's website, www.askmeaboutdprk.wordpress.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Telegram. Finally, as the name of the podcast suggests, please feel free to ask me questions in your comments and reviews. I will do my best to answer them in the next episodes. And now, let's start. Decade after decade, he kindled the torch of a new revolutionary upsurge and led the drive to flare up the flames of the Industrial Revolution in the new century, with the result that the DPRK could demonstrate its might as a manufacturer and launcher of artificial satellites and a science and technology power that has full command of computer numerical control technology. So reads the official biography of Kim Jong-il, the second supreme leader of North Korea. Since his real policies were a bit different from kindling the torch of a new revolutionary upsurge, today I will try to shed the light on his figure in a similar fashion like I did with Kim Il-sung in the previous episode. While explaining some details of his biography, I will also explain how Kim Jong-il's rule changed North Korean society as well as its political and economic systems. Once again, I would like to stress that this is not an official biography. The podcast episodes are far too short for that. It is merely a brief reflection on the person's role in a country's history combined with some basic analytical elements. So, let us start with the key biographic details. The circumstances of Kim Jong-il's birth are somewhat vague. The official North Korean version of his biography claims that he was born in a secret military camp on the sacred Pektu mountain in Korea. Unfortunately for Pyongyang, the old Soviet records clearly indicate that this was not the case. While the exact place of Kim Jong-il's birth is still unclear, what is known for sure is that he was born in the Soviet Union, somewhere around Habarovsk, not in North Korea. A small, but a pretty important lie. As with many other things regarding their supreme leaders, the North Korean propagandists wanted to make their biographies as beautiful and mythological as possible. So, what could be better than being born under a rainbow and a star on a holy mountain? Very little is known about his early childhood and education either. Kim Jong-il is said to have attended Mangyongdae Revolutionary School and then Kim Il-sung University. Most of the records are based on official North Korean sources, which can barely be called trustworthy. What is rather interesting, and confirmed by external sources too, is that Kim Jong-il received some international education, just like his future heir. Allegedly, Kim Jong-il studied English in Malta in the 1970s as a part of a secret agreement between the governments of Malta and North Korea. That was around the same time when Kim Il-sung made a decision to launch preparations for the future revolutionary transition. Perhaps. Kim Jong-il's father thought teaching his son some English would boost his international credentials. The period of preparation for the future power transition was not easy for the Kim dynasty. 
There were several candidates since Kim Il-sung had two wives and Kim Jong-il was the son from the first marriage. His stepmother, however, actively lobbied against him, trying to install her own children on the North Korean throne. After some internal family squabbles, Kim Il-sung eventually made his choice, and Kim Jong-il began his ascendancy to the highest echelons of power. The transition began with Kim Jong-il trying himself in various areas of government, administrative, legislative, and executive. He did several internships in the Supreme People's Assembly, in the party secretariat, in the military commission, and in the party presidium. Kim Jong-il also had to accompany his father on various trips, and especially on the so-called on-the-spot guidance tours. All that lasted around 20 years, which gave the North Korean government more than enough time to also build up a personality cult around Kim Jong-il, who received a nickname, Dear Leader, in contrast to his father, who was the great leader. Here I would like to mention a couple of important details about Kim Jong-il's personality before proceeding to the analytical part of the episode. While some of this information is based on rumors and individual statements of refugees, Kim Jong-il had not been particularly keen on taking the reins of government because he was more of an art person rather than a statesman. While the first part of this claim is hard to confirm, there is plenty of evidence indicating that Kim Jong-il was truly passionate about art especially Western and Japanese pop art. The bitter irony was that the latter two were largely banned for ordinary North Koreans. Kim Jong-il was also known for owning an enormous collection of more than 20,000 videotapes and DVDs, and even for producing his own films, such as The Sea of Blood and Pulgasari, a North Korean analogue of Godzilla. You can check them out on YouTube in open access, even though their quality by Western standards might seem questionable to you. The reason I mention this is because the creative part of Kim Jong-il's character might help us understand why he was sometimes comically incompetent in questions of economics and domestic politics. Another important note on his personality. According to high-ranking defectors, such as Huang Zhang-yop, Kim Jong-il was very stubborn and suspicious of his ministers and advisors. In contrast to his father, Kim Jong-il demanded absolute obedience and agreement from them, viewing any slight deviation from his thinking as disloyalty. Considering these personal factors, Kim Jong-il did not represent a model Western or even East Asian political leader. When Kim Jong-il had to take over from his father in 1994, it was not the best historical period for North Korea. Everything was falling apart. In the early 1990s, North Korea went through a series of devastating economic crises, about which I talked in episode 3 of this podcast. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 and Chinese socio-economic transformation, North Korea lost its main trading partners. Enormous floods in 1995-1996, followed by drought, crippled North Korea's agricultural industry. Its centralized planned economy hadn't been particularly efficient in the first place, but affected by the aforementioned disasters, North Korea experienced a devastating famine as the result. A green remark. Kim Jong-il's father was lucky enough to die right on time before the population could have realized into what trap he had brought them socioeconomically. Amongst the chaos of an unraveling country, Kim Jong-il concluded that he had one main goal, to pull through, clinging to power, and die from natural causes like his father. What would happen after that was none of his concern. 
To be fair on him, Kim Jong-il accomplished this goal with brilliant success in 2011. However, willingly or not, he also changed his country in dramatic ways. Specifically, I would like to focus on how Kim Jong-il's reign changed North Korea in three areas. In a nutshell, the country became more capitalist, more militarist, and more isolationist. Let us now look at each of these points separately. If you have been following my podcast for quite some time, you might have figured out that I do not consider North Korea to be a communist country. I talked about the reasons in episode 4. When forced with the economic consequences of the collapse of the socialist camp, as well as with the natural disasters of 1995-1996, Kim Jong-il also encountered something that his father had never seen before. Reinvention of capitalism. As the country's economy went down in flames, Kim Jong-il's government began to pump all the resources it had into military to make sure that the army remains loyal to the regime. That, however, meant that the public distribution system serving the general population did not function anymore. Consequently, many people turned to private farming, small-scale private production, as well as bartering and trading in newly emerged markets. These activities spread all over North Korea and began to grow in size very quickly. At first, Kim Jong-il was not sure how to respond to these newly emerged trends. As someone who grew up in the communist camp, he had natural distaste for private market economy at conceptual level, even though he relished its products, like Hennessy. On the other hand, his government had no idea how they could stop the economic pandemonium in the country. After some internal struggles, he eventually came to conclusion that such capitalist practices helped his people to live through a period of starvation. Thus, the government started to turn a blind eye on such activities, which could theoretically be classified as economic crimes under North Korean law. There was another reason behind Kim Jong-il's passiveness. The bureaucratic machine of the government had become significantly weaker due to the economic crisis and redirection of resources to the army. Corruption became an omnipresent phenomenon. Border guards allowed citizens to flee to China in search for better economic opportunities. State factory managers sold out the assets that their production facilities possessed or used them for private games, while police officers could be easily bribed into covering up trading activities of some elderly grandmothers. If you are curious about the role of corruption in North Korean society, check out episode 9. The 1990s were also the period when the outside world began to gather more and more evidence from the North Korean refugees. Fleeing the country became easier with bribes, and the world learned about the horrific plight of many North Korean citizens, about the scale of the economic devastation in the 1990s, as well as about the systemic human rights violations that the government committed on a regular basis. As the situation stabilized in the 2000s, Kim Jong-il attempted to restrict some of the market activities, thinking perhaps that the local capitalists had enough fun and it was time to return back to the good old days of Kim Il-sung. His restrictive efforts began around 2005 and culminated in a ridiculous currency reform of 2009. The reform aimed to reduce the money mass circulating in the economy and destroy the savings of entrepreneurs enriching themselves in the private markets. The scheme was quite simple. The North Korean won was revalued by 100 times and citizens were given 7 days to exchange a maximum of 100,000 wands worth approximately 40 US dollars on the black market. It was by all means a tool that many communist regimes used across Eurasia. 
The reform could have worked well had it not been for just one small thing, Kim Jong-un's interference. Apparently, it pained him to see the scale of economic misery that it would bring on those whom he did not consider to be capitalist traitors. Thus, he added a new provision rewarding everyone who was employed in the public sector. They were eligible for a 100 time increase in salaries. Just to give you an idea what that meant in terms of actual numbers, practically every single North Korean worked in state-owned factories. This generous and economically nonsensical gesture was supposed to reward these people for remaining true to the principles of socialist economy, unlike private traders. The problem was that Kim Jong-il didn't understand that many of these people were also employed in the great private sector. Perhaps no one dared to tell him that. Anyway, unsurprisingly, that currency reform resulted in a massive hyperinflational jump and even caused unprecedented public unrest in several North Korean cities. People demanded to raise the maximum exchange rate and eventually the government gave in to the demand. This was another sign of how the system had weakened if compared to the times of Kim Il-sung when such unrest would have been unimaginable in the first place. To calm down this public anger, one of the currency reform initiators was executed as a quote, son of a bourgeois conspiring to infiltrate the ranks of revolutionaries to destroy the national economy. Unquote. Although public dissatisfaction with Kim Jong-il remained suppressed, the famine of the 1990s and all this economic mess of the late 2000s caused by the government made Kim Jong-il extremely unpopular. Many refugees admit that while they had a lot of genuine sympathy and respect for Kim Il-sung when living in North Korea, that was not the case with Kim Jong-il. The 2009 debacle stopped the North Korean government from actively restricting marketization. While Kim Jong-un gave up on the idea of returning to the times of Kim Il-sung, he never fully accepted the market economy model. Throughout the last years of his rule, he had been vacillating between conducting China-style market-oriented reforms and trying to return some elements of planned economy. Here it would be worth mentioning that Kim visited China seven times in just 11 years. Quite often he inspected various industrial sites or visited major economic centers like Shanghai, Dalian, Guangdong to witness the marvels of Chinese capitalist transformation. Unfortunately, he never opted out for full-fledged reforms like in China or Vietnam, fearing a political collapse in the country. Another major change that we had already touched a bit when discussing economic questions was the changing role of the military. As I have already mentioned, throughout the 1990s, Kim Jong-il invested all the available resources into military despite the economic crisis mostly for the purpose of regime survival. For example, a larger share of the humanitarian assistance that the DPRK received from foreign governments and international organizations was distributed to the military and party elites. The rationale behind this prioritization was quite simple. On the one hand, Kim Jong-il, who did not have his father's guerrilla credentials, had to ensure support of the military that could overthrow him if they wanted to. On the other hand, external environment has become very hostile as compared to the period of the 1960s and 1980s, when the DPRK enjoyed the patronage of both the Soviet Union and China. Overall, through increased militarization, Kim Jong-il aimed to consolidate his power domestically and ensure that the regime is sufficiently protected from external challenges, specifically attacks from South Korea 
or United States. The changes that Kim Jong-il instituted had not just economic but also an ideological dimension as he introduced the concept of Songun or Songun Chonchi, translated as military first policy. The military became a centerpiece of the North Korean propaganda as well as allegedly quote, a locomotive of economic recovery, unquote. The so-called National Defense Commission officially became the highest governing institution in the country in 1998 to reflect the change practically. Military officials would usually combine their positions in the army with various ministerial or party roles. Even for average citizens, the idea of serving in the army became very attractive despite the fact that the North Korean conscription lasted 13 years. If one wanted to survive in the late 1990s, going to the army was the only choice if you wanted not to die from hunger. It was the only institution that received stable supplies of necessary goods throughout the catastrophic period of famine. The army was also used for various tasks aimed at recovering the economy, especially in the construction sector. Thus, if one joined the army, they received some sort of work, relatively small but stable food ratios, and even potential career opportunities in the distant future. This Songun turn also overlapped with the increased efforts by Kim Jong-un to accelerate the development of the National Nuclear Weapons Program throughout the 1990s and 2000s. This development went hand-in-hand hand with the main Songun thesis about military independence and sovereignty. The official regime rhetoric became increasingly militarist and xenophobic, aiming to cement the so-called fortress mentality among the population. Eventually, Pyongyang's military efforts culminated in the first nuclear test of 2006. Of course, all that didn't just happen in vacuum, as the international community was paying very close attention to North Korea. This is where we come to the last but not least important change I plan to talk about. Kim Jong-il's rule was the time period when the country acquired its status of an international pariah and was nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom. Things did not look all too bad for the DPRK at first, as the hunger of the 1990s caused a wave of international sympathy for the people of the DPRK in their plight. Kim Jong-il engaged in both multilateral diplomacy in the United Nations and bilateral political meetings. According to the statements of Kim Jong-il's contemporaries, such as Madeleine Albright and Kim Dae-jung, the North Korean leader was a very charismatic person and a skillful diplomat. Thus, it shouldn't be surprising for you that he managed to extract quite a number of benefits from the international community, not only for his country, but also for himself personally. Up until 2006, when the first nuclear test was conducted, Kim Jong-il had been dancing around with the American diplomats and even hosted the very first inter-Korean summit in 2000. Later on, it turned out that he benefited from the summit financially having received almost 500 million US dollars from the South Korean government. Throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, the international community was not entirely sure about the status of the North Korean nuclear program and how serious Kim Jong-un's intentions were. Naturally, after the 2006 test, a flurry of media reports about the country and its leader emerged in the international media. Reports that would never have been written about such a destitute country had it not been developing weapons of mass destruction. It is hard to say what exactly Kim Jong-il wanted. 
and whether he was 100% adamant about going through with the development of the nuclear weapons program. Perhaps in the late 1990s, he still could have given up on the program, which is why he and his diplomats had been negotiating so actively. Back then, North Korea participated in the so-called six-party talks with South Korea, United States, China, Russia and Japan, trying to get security guarantees and economic concessions. The DPRK needed food relief and humanitarian assistance so that it could recover from the devastated consequences of the famine of the 1990s. Alas, the events of the early 2000s convinced Kim Jong-il that he should not agree to disarm his country. The new Republican administration in Washington branded North Korea as a part of the so-called axis of evil along with Iraq and Iran. When the United States invaded Iraq in 2003 and overthrew Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-un realized that he had to stick to his militarization strategy till the very end. The contacts with the international community became more limited as North Korea was piled up with sanctions. It properly maintained its relations with China and Russia, but that was about it, unless you count very small socialist nations like Cuba or Venezuela. By the end of Kim Jong-il's reign in 2011, the DPRK transformed into a nuclear pariah. If you are interested in the topic of Pyongyang's foreign relations, I can talk about the details of the international sanctions regime implemented against the DPRK in a different episode. Before concluding, I want to point out another peculiarity of Kim Jong-il that distinguished him as a political leader from his father and from his son too. While this is not related to his policies per se, I think it is still a curious detail. It seems that he never liked to be a public figure, a trait rather unlikely for a politician. In fact, he would barely talk during massive public parades or give public speeches addressing other citizens. There are not so many recordings of him doing it either. Some scholars, like Andrei Lankov, explain it by Kim Jong-il's personal distaste for such events. If you remember, at the very start I mentioned that there are some rumors and assumptions about Kim Jong-il not fancying the idea of being a high-level politician. Perhaps him being socially awkward could serve as an additional explanation of why he was against the idea of becoming the North Korean supreme leader. In 2008, Kim Jong-il suffered a stroke and disappeared from public completely for quite some time. That was when both Kim Jong-il and his elites realized that a decision on the future successor has to be made. It has to be made quick. Like his father, he faced a hard choice and many family issues, especially because he had a lot of unofficial relationships. Again, every wife or mistress tried to push her child into the highest echelons of power. In 2009, Kim Jong-il finally made his decision and introduced his youngest son and future successor Kim Jong-un, in a fashion similar to that of his father's transition plan. Allegedly, Kim Jong-il chose him because Kim Jong-un was not overly soft and feminine unlike his brothers. Kim Jong-il didn't have that much time left to train his son, only a couple of years, which was a strikingly small amount of time if compared to his own preparation period. And even despite that fact, as Kim Jong-il hastily kept planning Kim Jong-un's succession, he never gave up on his unhealthy habits, such as heavy smoking and regular drinking. Thus, it should not come as a surprise to you that he passed away in December 2011, 
just three years after his first stroke. While the circumstances of his death are not entirely clear, a South Korean newspaper, Chosun el Bo, reported that Kim allegedly died from a heart attack caused by a fit of rage over construction faults at an important power plant project in Jagang province. If true, that would be a paradoxical end for a leader who failed to understand the real needs of his own people. Here, however, I would like to point out that North Korea watchers usually note many controversies concerning Chosun Elbo's coverage of North Korea, so I would take that report with a grain of salt. When Kim Jong-il passed away, willingly or not, he left behind a country that was completely different from Kim Il-sung's North Korea. It was now a semi-capitalist isolated society in possession of nuclear weapons, a country that wouldn't leave the front pages of international mass media outlets ever since the 1990s. An incompetent leader but a talented diplomat, he managed to pull his authoritarian regime through the period of economic crisis despite ominous predictions of imminent collapse coming from American and European political scientists. Even after his death, Kim Jong-un's legacy, enshrined in hundreds and thousands of propaganda pieces, wouldn't leave North Koreans alone. What is your opinion on Kim Jong-il, though? Was he just an untalented grumpy dictator? Or was he a brilliant diplomat who has tricked the United States, South Korea and the international community into aiding his country while he was secretly developing nuclear weapons? Leave your opinion in the comments below or in the review section. If you liked this episode, please leave a positive review on the podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Also, feel free to provide your feedback on this episode's quality and ask any questions about North Korea that you might have. Thank you for listening, stay healthy, and stay tuned.